Hello, and welcome to Talking Strategy, Making History. This is Daraka Laramore Hall. And with me, as always, is the esteemed Professor Dick Flax. How are you doing today? I'm feeling very esteemed now that you mention it. <laughs> Greetings, Daraka. And we'll be mentioning later that you're, there's a lot happening in your life so that you will share later. We'll keep people tantalized with that. And I <laughs> wanted to introduce Declan Griffin. Declan's, uh, let's call you an intern, although that sounds strange, but that's the simplest way to describe it. Declan stepped up to help us spread the word about uh, talking strategy making history about the podcast tell us what you did which some people who might be listening have already experienced yeah so i i guess i've i've been working primarily with dick on getting the word out about about talking strategy making history and one of the things about being on on the leftist political struggle side of things you seem to amass large amounts of emails for for email lists so we felt like that was a good a good route to uh to be the primary sort of notification system for for whenever there's new content coming out. But the mailing list also is it, it seeks to to work as as a couple of different functions. I mean, we're also looking for people to subscribe to the Talking Strategy Making History Patreon so that we can keep this project rolling and and maybe even to a higher degree. Um, but then also we want to get more in touch with the listeners and the in the audience. So in those emailing newsletter, there will also be a link for for feedback for, for if you guys have tips on anything or advice or, or you want to hear these two guys talk about a certain topic. We we warmly welcome the feedback. And I guess for the time being, if you want to join onto this emailing list, I think the best way to do it is just go to the Talking Strategy Making History Facebook page and just drop us a message, and, and we'll get you linked into that into that email newsletter. And I wanted to say that we promised if people became members and gave a little contribution monthly that they'd have more bonus things to experience from us. And now there are some bonus things. They're playbacks of radio programs that I did. And some of people might know that I do a show called Culture of Protest on, on local campus radio, KCSB. And it's a music show. So these bonuses are musical delights. And you can get them if you subscribe. So thank you, Declan, for being with us and for doing this. It's your idea to do a newsletter. And it sounds like a great thing to get us going on an even higher level of expression than we've been able to do so far. Doraka, this is our final broadcast of this season, season two. So why don't you take the lead here? Well, yeah. So welcome, Declan. Uh, thanks a lot for your work and uh, really appreciate you. I appreciate having you on board. And yeah, we can just dive into what we'd hoped to be a little conclusion and recap for season two, socialism and its discontents, uh, and a little preview and you know some discussion and live real-time planning and thought for our next season, season three. And so yeah, we've spent the past several months and a lot of personal uh, things have intervened to make it a kind of extra long season uh, in terms of the calendar year. But we've been talking about socialism and the socialist tradition and how it has become more relevant uh, in American politics, less marginalized as a set of ideas and why that's a good thing. 
And we also wanted to bring in some different perspectives, people who are very active or even professionals in socialist organizing, in building socialist organizations and institutions, particularly DSA, which is the one that uh, Dick and I both uh, belong to, have belonged to for a long time. And also just folks who are doing good political work out in the world, whether that's uh, analysis and news or uh, direct organizing um, and talking about how socialist ideas uh, might influence their strategy, their thinking, their uh, analysis of, of policy, et cetera. And you know, we, we didn't talk that much about the labor movement, which is a little bit strange for a uh, season on socialism. We did have a really good uh, interview sort of at the end of the season with Bill Fletcher, where we got an update on his perspective of w- where the labor movement is in the United States uh, at this time and what kinds of strategic choices um, they'll need to make to, well, to, to be able to have the power to implement anything we would, you know, reasonably call uh, socialist politics and socialist policy. And, you know, we had some, some lively discussions that I think were really good and insightful on all sides about the legacy and enduring kind of impact of non-democratic forms of socialism, of the authoritarian strain, the authoritarian line in uh, the socialist tradition. And that even got us uh, denounced as counter-revolutionary thugs by some Stalinists in like what is now disappointingly an online newspaper. I prefer the good old days when I'd be sold my own, you know, denunciation for a quarter or a dollar or whatever in front of a protest. <laughs> That's great. And so, Dick, what are three takeaways or like distillations, bullet points that you think listeners should uh, walk away with in terms of our discussion of of socialism and modern American politics? That's a great question. I, I like the, the idea of figuring out three. There are probably quite a few that we could call from what we've done. But uh, to me, the, the big takeaway, which I knew before, but I felt reinforced by some of our conversation, is the intertwining, I would say, between socialism and democracy. That socialism as a moral force and as a transformative vision can't be meaningful without it being understood to mean part of what we mean by democracy is what we mean by socialism and and vice versa. Socialism as a vision includes what has come to be called economic democracy and social democracy, as well as the political democracy that grew up with at least some of the capitalist societies. I, I make that point because in sort of mainstream conventional political science used to be said, maybe still said, that capitalism, democracy, depends on some kind of free market or open market society. And in that formulation, democracy simply means the right to vote and make choices through the ballot of who's going to run the government. Economic and social democracy refer to much more far-reaching participatory vision of democracy in which people are able through their uh, their means of living to be full citizens, to, to, to feel a sense of 
participation fully in garnering the results of their labor in the sense of uh, economic democracy to be able to participate in decisions in the economy that affect them. So these are uh, ideas that are not new to socialists, but I think I was reinforced in some of our conversation with various people about the need to keep that intertwining alive and to keep it foregrounded. Sometimes, I think sometimes that emphasis on democracy has not been uh, central to people's definitions of socialism or, or explanations of why they're socialists. The second thing that I got gleaned from the conversation was how the emergence of the Bernie Sanders campaigns and also of Elizabeth Warren's campaign in 2020, even though she didn't call herself a socialist, was that ideas of social democracy and economic democracy are actually very widely appealing to American voters. Both of these candidates made a big impact with some of their particular proposals. Bernie's multiple ideas, whether it was having to do with healthcare or uh, free public education, tuition, or uh, raising the minimum wage, Warren's ideas about worker representation on boards of directors. These are ideas that I think uh, now are uh, getting to be understood to be, or examples of ideas that come from the social democracy traditions of Europe, come from arguments in, uh, for economic democracy, and their campaigns showed that they had a lot of support. These two are among the most popular politicians still in this country. Unfortunately, they are not running our government, but nevertheless. And the third idea that is kind of interesting sort of the flip side of number one, is that socialist organizations and parties here and in Europe are dealing in one way or another with an authoritarian threat. In the European case, which you were able to explore quite a bit because you were in Sweden, came back to report on that, but also on other European countries. We did two sessions on what's going on in Sweden. And there, the uh, rise of anti-immigrant-based authoritarianism, and in Italy, of, of actually a, a proto-fascist party taking power in the government there, showed the weakening of the popularity or the, the majority popularity of the socialist parties in those European countries. In this country, we wrestled with authoritarianism internal to organization like DSA, Democratic Socialists, we talked, uh, we had a whole episode based on the, the, the problem of, an author of authoritarian attitudes or factions or caucuses within a DSA that really were not democratic socialists, but were uh, able to operate within the organization on a different agenda and one that you alluded to when, we, when you started the conversation today, namely the idea that somehow socialism was going to be imposed by an elite vanguard or top-down uh, forceful social change. And that idea is not new in the socialist movement. Uh, I'm surprised after the whole experience of the 20th century that it still has 
support and still operates significantly among people who live within within an organization like DSA. And I have to say that part of what I concluded from that conversation was there really, to simplify things, and, and I wonder what you think of this as a useful simplification, Duraka, is, is that on the one hand, in an organization like DSA, you have people who are out in the world, in the labor movement, in the community, uh, organizing, seeing the need to create organization at the grassroots of the country. And that's their main uh, work and their main preoccupation. And then you have people in the same organization who think their main politics is internal to the organization. And it matters deeply to them what resolutions get adopted and what ideological positions get voiced and what who controls what in the organization. And that those two attitudes or those two uh, ways of being members, to me, are quite contradictory. And I think that differences are probably represented even in different chapters. Some are more outgoing and outward looking, and some are fighting for control within the organization. I wonder whether that analysis makes any any sense to you uh, as a way of kind of understanding what's what's going on there. Well, I mean, I think it certainly makes sense sociologically. I, mean, I think we've all we've both and lots of listeners have been in organizations where there are members or activists who also have other constituencies that they're, you know, responsible to or informed by, you know, their, their, their political strategy is, you know, very much informed by the interests of, of like real people, of a real group of people versus folks who don't have that kind of connection or tie to any group and are, and whose, yeah, focus politically is on the, the rhetoric or the bylaws or, you know, something seemingly like arcane and not very practical or rooted in the day-to-day interests or lives of like average people. And like there, I think you, any organization has a range of, you know, those archetypes and people that are, that are both or go back and forth. I, I'm not sure that I want to totally say that that's like a description of what's happening in DSA. I mean, when our uh, episode in which we interviewed uh, folks, you know, from DSA was published, the, the uh, text of it was published in one of their like internal journals, discussion journals and got some, yeah, some discussion, which was really great. And exactly the kind of thing we want to do with this podcast is like have conversations that are useful for people out doing things. And, you know, I think that was, that was in part because it was in the lead up, it was very close to an important convention for DSA in which my understanding is the sort of more pragmatic reformist elements, caucuses and leadership and so forth were, were like defeated more or less, uh, at least in terms of representation on the national board and, you know, folks that uh, friends of ours refer to as ultras have a, a majority now and are sort of running the show. I just would assume just call them communists rather than ultras. I'd, that's like a football hooligan term to me. But the point being like just being clear about what it is about their ideas that are really not democratic socialist ideas. And it's like a problem. I think that they're, they're like around. So I, I tend to see it like 
I, I think that we should have a socialist organization and that a socialist organization should have like both a practical mission in politics and also just a very broad ecumenical voice for advocating socialist ideas and values and approaches to politics rather than anything kind of like super doctrinaire or highly disciplined, you know, the DSA we joined essentially uh, back in the day. I think that's still necessary and I think it could play a really important role and that needs people to be active in it and it needs people to care about what it says. And, and especially when there are people who are trying to pass resolutions to say that, you know, any member of Congress who is a DSA member will be expelled if they are campaigning for or along with neoliberal Democrats, the, you know, other members of their party, in other words, like if that's happening, then you have to have people that are engaged in the organization to fight it back. So you got to have people that take that seriously and like that that's a priority for them. If it's just the kind of folks in the outside of the donut, as we used to say, the people that like work full time for a union or, you know, are really where the most of their political work is as a, you know, in, in neighborhood organizing. And then, you know, they're, they also spend a couple hours a month in DSA. Like those people are going to get rolled. They're just going to get steamrolled by any group of communists. I mean, let's just, it's like, that's what it is. Well, there's another, the way I look at this, and, and by the way, you remember when I said I joined DSA and liked it in its early days because it didn't ask me to do anything. And what it was was a framework of some discussion of some, you know, it wasn't very clear what its function as a small organization was, but it maintained a certain, if you join DSA, then you have this identity, you are a socialist by definition, but that's about all. Well, that's not much, maybe not enough at all. We it's had a better so- situation now that, that it's, it's much realer as an organization, but here's, so here's the thing. There's chapters that have been very, relatively very effective in electoral politics, while at the same time, you have these other people, as you mentioned, who want to expel elected officials because they're operating uh, in the real world of, of parliamentary activity. And, and sometimes uh, those are the same people. You think? But yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, again, it's a range. And I'm not in it enough to be able to say that there's a clear distinction between people who are, you know, building effective chapters and that are elected, you know, that are, have become electorally significant, like that there's like that wing versus like the, the ultras. Cause I think that there are people who are avowed communists that are DSA members to use that funny old phrase, but I don't know what else to say who like work for DSA elected officials in California. I mean, it's, well, that it's is pretty weirder. bizarre. It's, yeah, it's very yeah. weird. Well, predictably, if the, if the history of the left means anything, left organizations is the more the more sectarian or uh, and authoritarian the the perspectives that dominate DSA are, the, they're going to lose membership, and that would be very unfortunate. I mean, of course, they'd be better off as a much more decentralized group in which in which national policies were not really the main concern, but support of activism, left-wing activism was the, was what everyone was agreed on doing with experiment and, and recognizing divergencies as necessary in a complicated world that we live in. That's my view. I agree 
to like 80% of that. I mean, I agree that uh-huh. a socialist organization post-Soviet Union collapse is just completely off its rocker if it thinks that it's going to have like a line, national political line, that right. then it's going to enforce. That's like both theoretically pure and good and based in in Marx or something and like, right. you know, highly intellectual and a practical strategy for like building political power for the left or for even for the organization or for its platform or policy goals. It's just outrageously delusional to think that that's going to happen. It has to be pluralistic. You have to like agree to disagree about the big theoretical things and like find projects to work on. And I agree that that's most likely to happen in a, like at a local level. And, and I think that's where you're seeing the best and most interesting things happen around DSA, right? Is in cities and states where people are getting people elected to office and they're shaking up crusty old networks and machines and all of that. It's wonderful. But I think that there is the unwillingness to like settle some of these questions is part of the problem. In other words, the, it, what what I gathered from sort of talking to uh, folks and what what David was saying on the on a, on the podcast was there's like an agreement to disagree about really really important things like what's going to be our strategic orientation or like actual practical orientation to the Democratic Party like a very very important thing about this like 900 pound donkey in the room that's a part of the reality of politics but like a real need to make sure that there's ideological unanimity on the Israel-Palestine conflict, you know, for example. And like that is backwards. And that's where I think we agree that there's like a part of socialist politics where we don't like, it doesn't have to be settled. I know. Does that align? Does that sound similar I, to what I, you're saying? I, I mean, I'm 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 deliberately looser than that, and you know, this has been my view based on my long, almost ancient experience. Now, is that there can't be one path for people to find themselves on the left? That there mm-hmm. have to be uh, multiple paths. And they, and they may seem to some degree in tension with each other, at odds with each other, but nevertheless, they're all probably have truth and they all have their deficiencies. And so the making social change is a constant experimental effort. And so the best attitude is to keep learning from what we do rather than insisting that we are on the right path versus that path, but mm. rather let's learn, let's exchange, let's mutually criticize but realize the pluralism is the central serious thing that is not a problem. It's a resource to be pluralistic. Yeah. That's that's my point. I and, definitely agree with that. And and an organization that can embrace that and doesn't insist on single strategy, strategic or, or ideological perspectives is the one that works nowadays, in my opinion. In fact, there's a way in which the left is organized, but it's not organized centrally. It's organized through networks and and in very strange ways that have not really been well codified. We don't really understand that that well. And yet it's interesting to me all these years, we've lived without a left-wing party. Remember the 
up until the 60s, there was one or another left-wing party in the old days, in the early part of the century, it was the, the Socialist Party, and then, and then the Communist Party. And then by the time of Stalinism and, and the end of World War II, the left was really dying because the parties, all of them, were shrinking and feeling uh, oppressed. And then the 60s happened, and you had groups like SNCC and SDS that, that really were leading movements at that time, but weren't as dominant as parties were. And then since the, you know, we've now had, what, 50 more or more years without a party guiding the left. And I would say a lot has been accomplished in that time. And I know that's not, we don't have time today to really argue that. Maybe we'll eventually get to that point in our ongoing dialogue with each other and with other people. But in any way, I would just put that forward as trying to understand how the last 50 years have actually been organized and where were the points of failure because of lack of organization might be a good project for someone to do. I don't want to dwell too much on, on, yeah. on that well, question. I do, but I do have one like uh, yeah. Yeah. sort of thing about DSA, which is about its self-conception, and it gets to this question of pluralism, that... Mm-hmm. You know, Harringtonism was a very humble kind of approach. Like, in, in, in some ways, very confident. You read his writing and, and like, the, um, the things that DSA was saying in the 80s and into the early 90s. It was, like, confident in its analysis, confident that, you know, that, you know, it was gonna, the world was going to be socialized in one direction or another and either be democratically by the left or undemocratically by corporations. And I think that was pretty solid analysis. And it's like what we're seeing the consequences of, you know, 20 years of that kind of neoliberal reorganization. And so, so it was confident on the one hand, but very humble and agnostic in terms of what its role could be or the role of a socialist organization could be. And definitely never thought of that. It would be the vehicle for, you know, a radical transformation. It hoped to be, a socialist voice, maybe the socialist voice, qua socialist voice, you know, per se, in a coalition, in a movement, in a broad constellation of organizations and efforts and uprisings and policy networks and so forth. And what we floundered around in the 90s was like trying to figure out some kind of role in place there after the DSOC strategy of being a form, you know, really explicitly a group in democratic party organizing and in democratic party organizations, we, we were just sort of like floating around a good, good analysis, good politics with no real strategy. And that's what, where I'm very sympathetic to David's generation and the people that like called the question on that kind of just stasis floundering stasis. And that laid the groundwork for becoming an electoral power. And that's not something that anybody really thought was possible by DSA directly. And that's cool. And that's yes. a surprise. And I'm happy to be like, have been yeah. proven wrong. But the question still remains, then what is the role? Even if it, like you're electing people with your brand, it's still not a party. And it's still not, was never meant to be and shouldn't try to play the role of a party, either in the Leninist sense of like some kind of fucking vanguard cult or in the sense of like that the Democratic Party is a party, you know, of being like the electoral 
entity that then is connected to the group in the legislature that holds one another accountable and so forth. So that's, to me, still the problem is that the baby was thrown out with the bathwater and this humility and thinking of DSA as part of something was lost and needs to come back. And it probably will, you know, as the sort of like bubble bursts and membership wanes and so forth, like maybe that will come to set, but it's just like so possible that it will all be hollowed out by just communist lunacy and there'll be nothing left, which I have to be the jerk who, who, remi- who says like, is what happened to SDS and SNCC? Yeah. Well, yes. And the only thing I would add to that is that if we can recognize that the, not audience, the, the, the committed numbers of people in this country who are f- for the kinds of social change of so- defined by groups like DSA is much wider than the membership of the organizations and how to construct relationships and, and maintain relationships uh, and how they actually work now would be a good thing to understand. And how how socialism can sort of punch above its weight in right. a way, right? Because right. there's a much bigger pool of people who are interested in the policies and even the political framing of it, you know, the arguments that come from social, that, that are ever going to be like in an organization, let alone, as you point out, like sitting through nine hour meetings about how to expel people over, you know, Syria. You know, man, it just occurred to me, we're, we're doing this podcast and we have some numbers of people who are regulars. And that's an example of what I mean by a kind of organization that, that exists through through this medium. And when we think about it that way, we realize, well, there are many other technologies of communication that are, people are latched into and that are part of what keeps people together and ena- enables people to make certain kinds of collective decisions about what to do next and so forth. Maybe I'm overly complacent. I probably am, but I, I kind of think that's what we have to work with basically. So we should just maximize the benefits of that. Uh, let me piggyback on what I just said by, by something I've been wanting to say since we started today, which is we did this whole season of podcasts and they're still worth listening to. They took a long period of time to get through the whole season. Several but they're months. evergreen. They're- but they, they are because <laughs> they do have, if you're listening today, but you haven't heard some of the past ones, just go to Spotify or go to Patreon or, and some of the other sites and pick and choose what you want to listen to. But I think I, I'm kind of proud that, of what we've done in terms of yeah. And I say that because of, of the feedback that, that I, I do get and that we get from people that say, these are pretty good. These are very informative. I learned a lot. That's very helpful to know. Always we, nice to we, get good feedback. Right, Appreciate yeah, it very much. Yeah. So let's move on, maybe talk a little bit about uh, next season, our ideas for next season, which flows directly from this question of what, what do we actually do? And- if this season we've been talking about ideas and the role of ideas, the importance of ideas and the socialist idea or ideal, I think, you know, next season we want to talk a lot more about what are the practical changes that we think folks should be organizing around that, that we see other people organizing around that we see uh, governments implementing or testing and so forth. And, what kinds of changes 
to the economy, to society, to governance, do we want, do we support? And, and thinking about that also, again, as always, with an eye towards strategy, towards you know things, the, the how of actually getting them done, but also how they might fit together with how policy fits together with organizing, with electoral politics, with public opinion, et cetera, in order to keep gaining power and opportunities to move a progressive agenda. So the word that keeps coming to mind that I tried to avoid maybe awkwardly uh, uh, just now, the word that comes to mind is reform. But it seems like reform, along with uh, incrementalism, um, have have gotten really bad raps lately. Like the terms, I, I see reform and reformist and basically used as epithets quite a bit. And that's strange to me personally, because to me that it's reform is the, you know, the broad description of what differentiates our part of the left, you could say, from people who are are like purely interested in symbolic or, you know, culturally expressive aspects of left life and left activity, right? Like the reformist left is is those of us who want to change shit. So we had a little argument, a little discussion before this about the name, or we're going to name this season about reform, the third season. Our argument was sort of around the meaning or lack thereof, maybe of a a slogan I keep seeing or a a cliche, a a phrase I keep seeing a lot uh, on the internet, which is, you know, capitalism cannot be reformed, which I have thoughts about that. What, What are your thoughts about that? I believe that when you're really in in the struggle, you're always working for something that can be called a reform. You're you're working for some more or less definable goal that can be achieved through struggle, through collective action. And there are, uh, this is not by no means an original statement, there are reforms that make the going system, if it's if that's a good way to look at it, work better. But there are other reforms that move toward more transformative outcomes that, that open the door for some breakthrough in human freedom, in democracy, in well-being for large numbers of people that the going system is not geared to provide. So you might say that just take randomly women's suffrage. That was a reform, right? To get the right to vote for women. But it was a transformative reform. It opened doors for millions upon millions of people and opportunity for for fulfillment, if if you will, through simply the the suffrage was not all that was involved in that, even that struggle. And I would say all of the big movements in in this history from below in our country's history have been reformists in the sense that, you know, the civil rights movement, it was simply trying to say the Constitution needs to be enforced in the South. That's a very reformist way of looking at it. Or integration, African-Americans should be uh, a full full participants in the, in the wider society. That seems, these seems like just making the system work better. And that's one way to look at it. But in fact, they were transformative because the going system was not geared to provide that kind of equality, that kind of uh, liberation, that kind of fullness of of being, that the movement was 
actually aiming for and to some great extent did begin to open the door to. I like the idea of non-reformist reform. It's a strange way of talking in a way, but it needs to be explained. But that's our job here on the podcast is to try to put meaning behind a phrase like that. A reform, we're interested in reforms that make life better in the here and now, but that also open the door to uh, going beyond what the what we have, what the system is now geared to, enabling people to to live by and live with and thrive with, and democracy to me is the measure of that. It's the easiest way to measure it. it: the more people have a direct to have a voice in, in what the rules and resources and decisions that affect them, how they are, how they are made, how they are applied, how they are distributed, uh, the more that is opened up, the more the system is being transformed because the going system doesn't really provide many of those kinds of opportunities without uh, determined struggle. I don't know if I'm making sense, but that's what I'm, I'm aiming at. So what you'd like to do is call the next season something like, can capitalism be reformed or something like that. And I'm willing to do that if we recognize that there's ways to reform capitalism that would make capitalism much less uh, a central feature of of reality than it has been up to now, maybe. In other words, that's what to me non-reformist reform means. You actually are reforming the system, but in such a way that it's no longer what it was. It's a qualitative, transformative thing. And there's it's this is not something to reach for. It's something that our history, I think, has already, um, we've had had those moments. What, what, what does it mean to not be a reformist? What, what, is the, what is the non-reformist? I like the politics of non-reformist reforms and remember when I first sort of heard that phrase, but it's a silly phrase, right? And it's a silly phrase In a because way. it's trying, well, it, it, it's, it just, on its face, it's well. A, well, well, let's take it's a self contradiction. Because let's take a topic it, that 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 we hopefully will get into in the in the next season, which be example would be housing. So, in our current system, there's very little provision for housing that is not based on housing as a as a marketable commodity. In other words, your ability to have housing depends on how much income you have, how much wealth you have. And there's marginal provisions in terms of public programs for for lower income people that are very inadequate in their face of it, but there are some provisions for that. And this contradiction between the need for housing and the ability of the system as we know it, let's call it the capitalist system, to provide housing to meet that need is now, that contradiction is so evident it's become, and pretty quickly become evident in so many parts of the country. Of the world. And the, I mean, world. the housing crisis the world. is global. Yes. How, yes. And so uh, a non-reformist reform would be to s- simply take a path, not simply, complicatedly take a path, which uh, is has come to be called social housing, which means housing produced because people need it, not because it is profitable. 
not that profit would be necessarily omitted from the housing production of society, but social housing means that the first priority would be to make sure that housing, which is a basic human need, is actually available for people, that the price of housing would not make it a barrier for people to have housing that they need, something like that. Now, social housing means something more. It also means that nonprofit organizations, whether it be governmental or uh, co-ops or other kinds of organizations that are not in the business of making money from housing, would be producing housing. And that's a common thing that happens even in our society, but particularly in European countries. So if you had housing done that way, that in itself doesn't transform the whole society, but it's it means there's a whole area of economic activity that is not simply based solely on market considerations, that's not simply based on private property determinations or, or rules that's produced in different ways and for human need purposes. We do that, you know, we have this with educa- education, public education is not a market-based, even if it's if it's maybe poisoned sometimes by being so, or parks, public parks are, for some reason, there's not a m- admission charge for public parks. People can even live in the parks and sleep in the parks as well as use them for their recreation. Well, when they can. When they can. <laughs> when so, they're allowed to, when they're not. Well, know, that's what I'm just saying, police. that they're, they're publicly available in ways that if they were private property in any way or, or commodified, they would not be so available. So, so, But but I still, I go back to the question. These are all reforms. Everything you're saying are yeah, reforms. Yeah, they are reforms. What makes yeah. them not reformist? And, and what does it mean to be not a reformist? Well, because they're not simply making capitalism work better. They are somehow transcending that. And I'm of the school, if there is a school of historians, I'm not a historian, but I'm, I'm willing to believe that say that the system that we call capitalism, if it's a system, grew out of feudalism. It didn't come by abolishing feudalism and establishing capitalism. It came and it's still in most real world capitalist countries, there are elements of, you know, you might say pre-capitalist societies still still have traces. You know, in England, most obviously the monarchy uh, is an example of that and the whole aristocracy, however hollowed out it is. So the same is true, I think, if, if we're looking beyond capitalism. Socialism, we can imagine a fully socialized society, but that isn't what we are actually working for in the real world at any given time. We're working for developing the elements beyond capitalism, beyond the boundaries that capitalism puts on human action, on human aspiration, on democratic participation. We're looking beyond those in particular ways, though. So that's what makes it a non-reformist reform. It doesn't reform capitalism. It moves the society beyond it in that way. And maybe at some point, people come to think, hey, we're not even capitalists anymore. Yeah, um, that's that's reformism is what you just described. <laughs> well, that's reformism in a socialist context. Yeah. If, well, that's, what, reform- if that's what it, you mean by reformism, I'm all What for I mean it. is that I, okay, here's what I think. I think that the term non-reformist reform is a historical artifact 
of from a, a part of the left tr- had feeling like it needed to justify itself because of attacks from people who don't believe in like using democracy or participating in elections or you know governing in good faith and believe that the only way that you get from capitalism to socialism is through some kind of revolutionary rupture. And so people who agreed with that were revolutionaries and people who didn't agree with that were reformists. And so at a certain point, the critique of reformists, oh, you haven't abolished capitalism, you're just, you've just raised wages, you've only done this, you've only done that. The response was, no, look, some of the kinds of reforms that get done, not all of them, obviously, some of them actually change the balance of power between workers and capital. Some of them actually, you know, take things out of the market, as you described with like housing. Right. Right. And so it was pointing those things out. And it was like a ironic, yeah, but defensive move to be like, I mean, these are reforms, but, you know, they're not reformist reforms. They're non-reform, you know, in a... Because a reformist is someone who's happy to just be stuck in capitalism, but but the fact is that's like a that's just not true of like the reformists, the people the people who actually built the changes to the economy and society and so forth. That now you like we any socialist talks about wanting to expand and build on like those people were reformists and. Um, not revolutionaries. And and like that's what I'm trying to get at is that to me it's a thought-ending cliche that capitalism can't be reformed because like, of course it can be it's capitalism is reformed all the time. It's different. It changes. It's a very different world to live under capitalism with unions and without unions. It's a right. very different world to live in a capitalism where there's a few people in unions or 80% of the people in unions. Like those are differences and they're, as you say, like part of a spectrum of economic systems from capitalist to socialist rather than, a, you know, thinking about it as some bright line. And this notion that there has to be, ultimately reform can only go so far and then there has to be like some rupture, some break, some other thing, I think is a incredibly stupefying and dangerous like mythology that again, keeps us from focusing on pushing for like understanding that pushing for expanding democracy into the economy or pushing for you know structurally changing the power of workers is the game that's what we're doing that's it's not the pregame <laughs> it's it's the okay. game and then well, that's we, that's what, we, how I want to frame the the season yeah and we totally agree on this so one of the reasons I love doing this with you is because I learn from your seemingly obsessive focus on some topic like this and and I and, and I and now I've seen what you're what you're trying to say it in a way non-reformist reform as a phrase blocks the you know a, a kind of more more rational deeper understanding of what it's all about what we're all really need to be about but the problem though is that reform can mean fixing something that needs a little bit of repair rather than what you were alluding to, which is fundamental, some kind of significant change in power relations toward the democ- toward democracy and away from. Well, I authority. think I think of the term reform as fairly neutral in this sense. But, I mean, by now, because we, there's so many right wing movements that also refer to themselves as reform. To me, yeah. reform is about is the but but what it is about is about 
changing the shape, changing the structure, like altering something, reforming it, not, you know, something deeper than, you know, just like uh, twisting the dials on it, you know? So like, it's not a reform to increase unemployment benefits. It's a reform to put in unemployment benefits or expand access to it and so forth. That that's how I think about it. And so, and so you can have reforms that don't lead to something better than capitalism. You can have reforms that lead to something worse. You can have reforms that lead to something sideways, but like I'm, I'm a reformist in that that is the, the, the mechanism, the strategy, the technique that I think I, we should use and need to use to make society more democratic and more socialist and more feminist and better. So, right. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what we, what we can um, think that we'll be trying to put together for the next season. And I can start by, you know, I'll just repeat that housing seems to be one area that we really need to uh, spend at least one episode, maybe more. We've got local struggles that we can talk about and maybe beyond the local, some people that we want to call upon to uh, yeah. talk about the concept of social housing and what kind of breakthroughs in, 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 in the provision of housing on, a, on, a, on the scale that people can need it and benefit from it. So that would be one. And the other most obvious in terms of pressing urgency has to do with what on the left is called the Green New Deal, but the whole idea of creating a really concerted set of social policies that will, that hopefully can rescue the planet. So, and we might start with the Biden infrastructure programs that are that are are oriented that way. That in the world of magazines like the American Prospect is being defined as industrial policy. Mm-hmm. Industrial policy, I think, is a phrase that comes from European social democratic circles. Liberal, just mid-century and, liberal and, and, circles and too. Mid-century, yes. We used to have it. it used to be a well, thing that well, you get, well, you the, get the, drilled and, on. And well, then we well, just were like, no. Well, the, one of the things I was going to, I think we've already got some hope, hope for, is that our local neighbor and friend, Nelson Lichtenstein, has just written a book called The Fabulous Failure about the Clinton administration. And what that book is about is how the Clinton folks started with the intention of industrial policy as the centerpiece of their reformist administration and how they then, Clinton and his uh, part of his administration shifted toward neoliberalism, uh, abandoned the industrial policy program. That's what his, so Nelson Mm -hmm. Lichtenstein can talk about his book and also about because he's very expert on on the labor movement. He's a labor historian par excellence with particular attention to the UAW. And I think he's got some thoughts about what the UAW strike, which we're, is going on as we are talking here right now, and similar things mean. So that would be one thing I can promise that we will get him on. He's eager to do it. That sounds And that great. will be beneficial. And any other examples that you'd like to bring up about what we should really focus on? Well, a couple things come to mind. And one is labor relations, sort of wonky term, but, you know, union power, labor power. Uh How how has the power of working people's organizations to shape the economy waned? 
over the last several decades and how can it be strengthened and what are yeah different strategic and policy efforts to do that there's some, definitely a lot of interesting things happening in California along those lines even though in the United States at a federal level we're you know hugely stalled in tr- of and uh, for uh, you know broad private sector labor reform um, there's a bunch of interesting things that that the state legislatures have been doing that I'd love to to dive into and also put that into a context of in the way that the Green New Deal, you know, is uh, an attempt to address climate change in a socially just way and a, and a economic, economically productive way. By the way, we also have the giant crisis of uh, social crisis of economic inequality and persistent structural poverty, and you know that is another set of problems that. I don't think can be solved through capitalism. I think you need other mechanisms to go in and actually, you know, uh, take certain things out of market relations and strengthen workers' power to, yeah, frankly, disrupt capitalism, disrupt, you know, how it's supposed to work, quote unquote. So, you know, that's another interface to me where having a criticism of capitalism and having some kind of vision and openness to something else is really important for you know having the kind of independence of thought to give workers a real shot at having some power in an economy that's just so fundamentally rigged against them. So this sounds exciting. We we can pursue a number of these uh, between sounds you good. and me. We we both have the ability to talk endlessly as we as we're <laughs> demonstrating right now. But with our numbers of people, we're going to reach out to to try to corral into this but you have Absolutely. some more things you want to share about announcement. yeah so in re- to yeah to wrap up keep an eye out for our next full episode which will be the the beginning of season three something about reform and capitalism tba to be <laughs> finalized <laughs> and um you know definitely uh like and subscribe wherever you're listening to this and as always you can help us cover our expenses by subscribing to our patreon also, just wanted to announce for listeners who don't already know that uh, my wife and I will be welcoming a baby in just a couple of weeks, a few weeks um, from whenever this drops, uh, which is very exciting and uh, may add some cute or possibly horrifying background noises um, <laughs> for my end of the recordings. And the other announcement I have is that, as you know, Dick knows, I've been intermittently for many years working on a book on a monograph. And uh, I've also been wanting to sharpen my uh, like writing skills and focus beyond ungodly long Facebook rants. So with both of those goals in mind, uh, I'm going to be launching a Substack uh, newsletter and uh, subscription. Uh, it's going to feature both like book fragments and drafts that people can comment on and yeah, poo-poo and be, you can disagree with my book well before publication and be very cool. As well as you know, essays on political topics, cultural topics, including things that we we cover uh, here on talking strategy, making history, and so hopefully I'll have it launched and finalized, and all the T's crossed and I's dotted in time to send it out with this episode. If not, it'll be it'll go out to our listeners uh, shortly afterwards. So anyway, thank you very much for listening and for joining us. Well, the uh, next this time we see each, each other on, in this framework, you will be 
a parent, a father, and that's this is very true. exciting. And I think that's very strange. Be, uh, no, it'll be you'll love it. And uh, then uh, it's going to make uh, me all conservative. I'm going to start gonna worrying about conservative. Yes, buying a house and my housing. <laughs> my could uh, well be property values. <laughs> <laughs> At least worrying about the future of the planet might also well, for be. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, well sure. folks, as we mentioned at the outset, uh, hope you get our newsletter, pay attention to it, and stay with us. And we'd love to hear from you if you have thoughts, comments, critiques at any point. So thanks for being here with us if you're listening. Adios. rock a baby on the treetop when the wind